0: I am honored by the opportunity to stand before you and proclaim God's Word again today. Uh, and I hope that you have your Bible with you. Would you take it out, please, and turn to Psalm 128? And even if you don't have your Bible with you, uh, if there should be one provided for you there in the pew. If you'll take that out, that will provide the primary text and the outline for our lesson this evening. So Psalm 128 is where we will be. And most of you uh, who are members here will recognize this psalm as one of the psalms that we read in our daily Bible reading for this past week. Uh, but I felt pretty safe about, about uh, preaching on this one, knowing this was the last of the psalms in the list of songs that we uh, read, uh, that Harold nor I would have a chance probably to get to it in our classes. It proved true in my class, and I assume it proved true in the adult class as well. If not, well, you get to hear my take on it instead of Harold's, uh, instead of just Harold's this morning. So Psalm 128, let's read it together. This describes the family man who fears God. Starting in verse 1 of Psalm 128. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy, and it shall be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house, Your children like olive plants all around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you out of Zion. And may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Yes, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. This is a psalm of ascents or steps or degrees. It is believed that this is one of the collection of psalms that were sung by the Jews of Jesus' day and before as they were coming up to the temple to worship on one of the feast days. Even as they were walking up the many steps going to the temple, some of which survive to this day, they would all be singing these psalms together. We're told in Luke chapter 2 and verse 41 that Jesus' parents, uh, as an example of good practicing Jews, did this every year at Passover. In Acts chapter 2, we're told that there were Jews from every nation under heaven in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And then the text lists where they're from, and it's literally every point on the compass of the known world at that time. Good Jews would come together for the Passover, and many of those would stay in Jerusalem 50 days or so until the day of Pentecost. And this is one of the Psalms that they would all sing together, as they're reminded of who it is they are as a people, and what God desires from them as individuals. And these psalms, these psalms of steps or degrees that they would sing together and be reminded of every year cover a wide range of topics that relate to the life of a saint, the the lives of those who are striving to serve God. And specifically, Psalms 127 and 128 are focused on the family. We'll focus our attention on Psalm 128, this evening, I want to start by showing you that there is a, a general principle that this psalm begins with. The general principle is found there in verse 1. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Man or woman, young or old, if you fear the Lord, this is the path to blessing. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. Uh, raise your hand if you're in my junior high class this morning. Okay, I've got several of you here. Remember our acronym SOAP when we're talking about the different kinds of parallelism in Hebrew poetry? Well, this is the S from that acronym. This is the synonymous or the same parallel image. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. And what does it look like to fear the Lord? Well, it's those who walk in His steps. You really fear the Lord. And along with that fear, that would grow into love and so forth. But if you really fear Him, if you really love Him, what you're going to do is walk in His steps. The man who fears the Lord is the one who walks in the Lord's ways. The wise man Solomon, who we know wrote Psalm 127, and it's possible, even likely, that he wrote Psalm 128 as well, said in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments for this is man's all. I mean, how do you get broader than that? Man's all. Everything comes back to this general principle, that you need to fear the Lord and walk in His ways. This is what life is all about. And this is the path to true blessing, both physically and spiritually. And we can apply this principle to all areas of life. Think about your work life. Well, fear God and keep His commandments. I need to fear God and keep His commandments more than my boss, more than losing my job, more than making more money. What about the school environment? Fear God and keep His commandments more than popularity, more than my teachers, more than what my coaches demand of me. I need to fear God and keep His commandments. Fear the Lord and walk in His ways. But what Psalm 128 then does is it takes this general principle And it applies it to a specific application. If you drop down to verse 4, we see that the same idea is repeated again. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. And what is it that's found in those intervening verses in verses 2 and 3? We know you're going to be blessed if you fear the Lord, generally. But specifically, if you're someone who fears the Lord and walks in His ways, In your family. And so let's think about the family and how this psalm describes the family man who fears God. Um, And though it describes the family man who fears God, certainly it would apply to the family woman who fears God as well. Notice four things, four points from the text with me. Number one, a thriving family requires godly work, it's not something that just happens, it requires godly work from us. Let's read verses 2 and 3 together. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy. That's that same word that's blessed there, the first word of verse 1. You're going to be blessed, you're going to be happy, and it shall be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house. Your children like olive plants all around your table. Literally, that first phrase there in verse 2, when you eat the labor of your hands, literally that's when you eat the fruit of your labor. And that's really more helpful to us when we think about the metaphor that closely follows it of the wife and children being described as growing vines and olive plants which produce fruit. What verse 2 tells us is, in a general sense, you reap what you sow as a general principle. Grapes. Wine and oil all come from sowing and reaping, and all of them are symbolic of great blessings from God. In fact, if you were to trace the description of a blessing throughout the whole Old Testament, the most blessed life in the Old Testament is when you sit under your own vine and your own olive trees. And yet here, the vine and the olive trees are your family your wife, your spouse, and your children. And so my question is, to those of you who are married, are you sowing for your wife or husband to grow and thrive in your home? It describes this woman, this wife, in this way. She is in the very heart of your house. She wants to be there. This is the place of Safety and belonging for her. Not the house, of course, but the home, the family. She is just the opposite of the woman in Proverbs chapter 7 and verse 11, whose feet do not stay at home. And of course, we all make our own choices in that, and our spouses as autonomous, individual human beings are going to have to make their choices whether the home is the place they really want to be. But am I, as a husband, Are you, as a husband or wife, are you nurturing your home and your relationship with your spouse where this is where they want to be? Are you working on this relationship? Is it a priority for you? Uh, This morning we talked about that concept, the grass is greener where you water it. Well, you need to be watering the grass here in your home. And how do you start that? Maybe... There's been a long period of neglect where that has not been the case in your home. May I suggest starting with just one godly act followed by another toward your spouse, regardless of whether or not that act is reciprocated. Because if the vine has been neglected, it will take more time and more work for that vine to become fruitful again in the relationship. But this relationship, if this relationship is healthy, Your spouse becomes a source of blessing and celebration, just like a fruitful vine. The image that we see in verses 2 and 3 really is of the early stages of family life. Psalm 127 gives a different image of children. It, It describes children as arrows. And what do you do with arrows? Well, you take them out of your quiver and you shoot them off, right? And many of you here, you've already shot off some or all of your children to do their own thing. Maybe you still have some in the quiver and some have been shot off. And that's describing family in the later stages when you're almost done. I mean, maybe you never finished raising your children. But you're almost done raising your children or perhaps even finished raising your children. You've shot them off like arrows. Here in Psalm 128, it's exactly the opposite. This is describing a family in the early stages of family life. It is these little tiny olive plants, these olive shoots, maybe your translation says, that are all around the table. And they're growing. They're not even bearing fruit by themselves yet. And so what the picture is, is of a dad and a mom with younger children still at home around the dinner table in the early stages of parenting. And I think what's implied by that is that the consistent work done here in these early stages impacts everything that comes after this. What are you reaping as a parent? Well, Generally, you're reaping what you've sown. And what are you sowing? Well, that's generally what you're going to reap. Whatever impact our children might make on our lives and the world as adults, and that's the last two verses of this psalm that we'll get to here in just a second. That impact starts when they're young. And it's not that good or bad work at at these early ages can't be undone by the opposite later on. But a foundation is being laid here and now for what comes next. Godly adults don't usually just happen. Usually they come from godly young adults. And godly young adults don't just happen. Usually they come from godly teens. And godly teens don't just happen. They come usually from homes where godliness is emphasized and expressed when they were young, when they were children. And it's the little things that add up over the course of time. You need to pound that rock until it splits. Let me give you just one small example of this. Um, As... As I get older, I get less and less comfortable talking about my own parenting, but here goes anyway. Are we communicating, fathers and mothers, that our daughters and our sons, but I have more experience with daughters, are we communicating to them that spiritual things are the most important? Now, you've heard me say that a bunch bunch of times. Let Let me give you a specific example of that. Daddy, do I look pretty? What a question. What a question for a father with a daughter, right? Uh, secular psychologists would tell you the importance of this moment. I mean, this is the moment. Daddy, do I look pretty? Um, and secular psychologists would also tell you that the, the statistics of little girls with a good relationship with their father versus those without that relationship. And some of those statistics are staggering, absolutely staggering. So that's the world telling us, hey, this is very important. But God's word says that that's important as well. What do I say? Daddy, do I look pretty? Well, I could just say, yes, you look pretty, baby. And that would be good, and that would be true. But what would be better than that? What would sow better seed? This psalm says we reap what we sow. So we want to sow the very best seed possible, right? Right? So what would sow better seed than just saying to your daughter, yes, you look pretty? Um, Here's what I've said for many years with my, my girls. Something along the lines, oh yes, baby, you're beautiful. But is it more important to be pretty on the outside or on the inside? I ask them that question. And they say, on the inside. And I say something like, And I'm so glad that you're pretty on the inside and the outside, but the inside is always more important to me, and it's always more important to God. What am I trying to do in responding that way? I believe that, so first and foremost, I'm telling the truth to them, I'm speaking truth to them, but I'm also trying to lay a foundation. Um, and there were times that didn't go particularly as I planned, uh, you know, it's easy to say that in a sermon, everybody says, oh, that's wonderful, that's, that's really, really good. Sometimes it was like, Daddy, do I look pretty? Yes, baby, you look pretty. Thanks, Daddy, and off they go, right? And sometimes I say, okay, is it more important to be pretty on the inside or more impor- important to be pretty on the outside? On the inside, you know, that's not what I was looking for, yes, I know, I've heard this spiel before from you, Daddy. And yet I'm trying to lay that foundation. I'm trying to make sure that I pound the rock that they know that this is the foundation for what pretty is by God's standard and by our family's standard. Because lots of things come back to that, right? Battles over modesty in the future come back to that concept. What they will use to attract boys in the future comes back to that concept. Where they will find their self-worth comes back to this idea. I'm trying to lay a foundation with 20 extra seconds. That's all. You think about that. I'm taking 20 extra seconds to sow just a little bit better seed with my daughters. Parents, let me encourage you. Take 20 extra seconds to emphasize the spiritual in your responses to your children. Because I said so. That has its place. Yes, baby, you look pretty. That has its place. But don't miss opportunities to sow better seed so that we might all reap better fruit with our children. Now, does that mean they're going to be perfect or that I expect them to be perfect? Of course not. But here's my goal in saying that and other things like it. They aren't going to run into the arms of some bad boy with bad intentions someday because they're not sure if their daddy loves them or not. Because their daddy loves them all the way around God's universe and back. And whether or not they run into the arms of a bad boy someday or not, it will not be because they're unsure of my love or God's love for them. And they're not going to dress immodestly because they have no sense of self-worth beyond their bodies. They're going to hear over and over from me, from their mother, from the scriptures, from this pulpit, that their worth extends so far beyond what they look like on the outside or even what others think they look like on the outside. And maybe we're going to have to fight about how we dress modestly or immodestly. But they're not going to dress immodestly because they have no other self-worth. And they're not going to make mistakes and be afraid to come to me as their father because I've been afraid to talk to them about anything or been unwilling to extend grace and forgiveness or seek grace and forgiveness when I've messed up myself. I resolve as a father to control my temper that I'm going to be just and fair but also eager to forgive. And I ask my daughters all the time, you know you can come to me about anything, right? I ask them that question. And I tell them, no matter how bad things seem, with God's help we can fix anything. But you just have to come to me. You just have to come to me. And we can make it right. And I'm going to admit when I mess up, even when I sin, come to them asking for forgiveness as an example of what that looks like. Maybe they won't come to me, but it's not because they're going to be afraid of how I react in that situation. And they aren't going to be carried away after every wind of doctrine and culture because they've never been taught any better. We're going to look at things from a godly perspective and see what the scriptures say about the things of this world. And I admit freely. You know me, I've never been one to hide my faults very much from this pulpit. I admit freely that we go through better and worse stages of consistency with all of these things. Uh, I shouldn't say we. I go through better stages of consistency on these things. And I have regrets already. They're 8 and 11, and I have regrets about, about many mistakes that I've made as a parent, um, about not doing more memory work when they were younger, for example, among other things. And some of the things that I listed might still happen in the future, which doesn't mean that we've failed as parents or anything like that. And I know that I've been far from perfect. But their mother and I have done everything in our power to lay this foundation consistently while we can. These will not be the reasons they go down those paths if they do. And I want my daughters to know that they don't have to go down those paths Just because the world tells them that they should or that they must. Um, What kind of impact can we do with this kind of work? There's a lot of experience that I don't have as a parent. But the parenting that's described in Psalm 128 when they're young, that's something that I do have experience with. And it requires godly work if we're going to sow better seed. There's impact. There's impact that is made from this work. I want you to keep reading, if you would, in verses 4 and 5, because your parenting, the way you parent, impacts your life. Read beginning in verse 4. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Now, it's interesting. This is a different word in Hebrew than what we see in verse 1, translated blessed, and verse 2, translated happy. Those words are focused more on your individual state. I'm blessed, I'm happy. This word in verse 4 is a slightly different word and it's more focused on the favor that we receive from God, that this all comes from Him. That's the very idea that's expressed in Psalm 127, isn't it? Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And the house that he's talking about there is the spiritual building of our home. Ultimately, I want to be blessed because I'm receiving favor from God because I am walking in His ways. But keep reading in verse 5. The Lord bless you out of Zion. That confirms that idea, right? And may you see the good of Jerusalem. Uh, Maybe a better translation would be so that you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. The you that is used here in these verses is singular. You, as an individual, as an individual parent and follower of God, are blessed by the Lord from Zion. Where the Lord and Zion are emphasized in your family, you're going to be blessed by the Lord. And so those tender shoots of olive trees that we see back in verse 3, they grow, and you enjoy the fruit of your labor with them. You get to enjoy your family in later days with your children and grandchildren. Instead of just trying to keep everything together, you enjoy those days. And this is a blessing from the Lord that flows from living a godly life in fear of His ways. Doing things God's way is better, obviously. Um, it's for our good always to follow the commands of God, Deuteronomy 6 says. But may I suggest this evening that it's also easier to... Even from a a selfish perspective, sure, doing the things the way the world suggests, children run homes, no discipline, no commitment to spirituality, affirmation of every whim of your child, whether godly or reasonable or not, that might be easier in the immediate present because you just get to say yes to everything. But it is harder in both the medium and long term for you and the impact it's gonna have on your life, but also for your kids. Another thing that we've always emphasized with our girls is um, you get to do and enjoy more things as a kid if you know how to behave. You know, that's, that's kinda just the reality, right? If you know how to behave, you're gonna get to do and enjoy more things. And so if we can trust you as our daughters, if we can trust you to listen, to obey, to trust us that we're not going to ask you to do something that you can't or shouldn't do. And number four, not to throw a fit when things don't go the way you want it to go and have a good attitude in whatever it is we're doing. If we can trust you to do those things, then you get to do stuff that maybe other kids might not get to do. And we actually get to enjoy those things together because you know how to behave. Um, Let me give you an example. Um, On our trip, that we just got back from, uh, we went zip lining as a family. First time we got to do that all as a family. Uh, and uh, we had to find an outfit uh, that did zip lining that allowed both, uh, both of our girls to do it. So, eight and 11. Uh, some of the uh, zip lining outfits, they, the cutoff was 10. For others, it was 12, which would have knocked out both of our girls. And uh, so we found this outfit, very reputable, don't worry. Uh, everything was safe. Um, and when we arrived, uh, these, there was another kid who was an older teenager, maybe 15, 16, but they were, they were by far the youngest kids who were there. And you could see what, what might have been interpreted as annoyance on the faces of uh, both some of the staff and some of the people who were also going on the zip lining adventure. Uh, you know that look that says, oh great, there's kids involved in this. And after it was over, um, several of those commented on the staff and other participants, wow, those kids did great. And there was a sense of relief for them. But for us, it was an expectation because we know how to behave. And that's not strictly a spiritual thing, but it is based on godly principles I haven't seen the benefits of making these investments early on in the long term yet, but I have seen them in the medium term. And I am grateful for getting to enjoy my kids now because of the work that we've done earlier. And I want that pattern to continue moving forward. I want to enjoy my kids as teens, not somehow be afraid of that or, or think, oh, I can't, oh, I'm so afraid of what's gonna happen. No, I wanna, I wanna look forward to and enjoy those years because of the work that we're doing now. And I wanna enjoy my kids as young adults because of the work that we do with them as teens. And I want to enjoy them as adults because of the work we do as young adults. And I want to enjoy my grandchildren, if I'm someday blessed with them, because of the work that, that we've done with our kids. And obviously, I, I think it should go without saying, but let me say it again. Everybody has to make their own choices in this, and our kids are going to make their own choices, just like I made my own choice as a child when I became an adult as well. But what kind of foundation am I looking to lay for my kids here? Your parenting impacts your life, and obviously theirs as well. But your parenting also impacts generations to come. We've, we've already kind of uh, implied this, but notice there in verse 6, yes, May you see your children's children. What is the model, for better or for worse, most children use when they themselves become parents? How do they parent? Most of them parent the way they were parented. Now, some of them look back at that and say, hey, that didn't work. That wasn't good. Maybe that wasn't godly. I'm going to have to do things differently. But generally, we all kind of do what it is that we saw. That's what we know. That's what we fall back on, what our parents did for us. So how do I want my grandchildren to be parented? And am I parenting in such a way that I want my kids to parent like I parent? Um, I want them to be better than me, no doubt about that. But at the very least, if they parented as I parented, uh, would that be a godly way of doing it? Again, the image that is used here of olive trees is very powerful. Uh, We see this image of a table, and you've got these little olive plants that are all around. They're not even bearing fruit yet. But think about the impact that those olive trees can make in the long term, in generations and generations and generations. What do we know about olive trees? Well, in the land of Israel, olive trees can live for hundreds or even thousands of years. There are hundreds of olive trees in Israel now. Even with all of the wars and the crusades and droughts and fires and everything else, there are hundreds of trees that date to before the time of Christ. Olive trees make impact for generations. And what's being described here is what you're doing now with your children, the mundane day-to-day emphasis that you're making on spiritual things, that can have an impact for hundreds or even thousands of years into the future. That's what this is saying. And that's not something for us to say, oh, that's just too much pressure, I can't handle that. That's just something to encourage us that this work matters. And it matters to you, it matters to your children, but it matters to God, too. Estes, uh, in his commentary, says this, The ripples of blessing continue to spread outward in the family and in the nation in the final verse of this psalm. The blessed person gets a glimpse of the prospect of seeing his grandchildren, a tangible evidence of the legacy of blessing that the Lord has launched in his life. Your parenting impacts generations to come. And so we see this long-term impact. But there's also widespread impact. What is the last phrase that we see in this psalm? Peace be upon Israel. I want to suggest that that's not just a throw-in line by the psalmist here. You know, uh, let me. how am I going to finish this psalm? You know, it's a poem. I don't have anything left. Oh, peace be on Israel. That's a good thing. You know, I I've, I've see that elsewhere in the Bible. I'm just going to throw that in. May I suggest in some ways this is the culmination of everything that comes before it. Your parenting impacts Church, and your, impact, your parenting impacts the world. This is coming out of Zion, this blessing, from Jerusalem. And now it is all Israel that is impacted by the peace produced in this family. The comparison to today would be to the church and the peace that we might have with one another. But it impacts the world, too. Um, if you were here this morning, think back to that sermon for just a second, if you would. What if... What if we raise children who know their purpose early on, and children whose practice matches that purpose? Um, There are a number of you who've done a great job with your own children, and then our children, the children here at Timberland Drive, with this very thing. I could point to a number of examples, but I'm just going to point to Tim and Debbie for just a second. And one of the things that that they started with, uh, I think it was a junior high group a number of years ago, was Tim comes up to them and he says, you're salt, and they say in response, you're light. I've started doing the same thing with that same group, you're salt, you're light. I met a couple of girls from that group in the back hallway. Um, I said, you're salt, they said, you're light, and you're salting and lighting. I'm like, hey, you listened, I like that, that's really, really good. What is that? That's their purpose. And maybe when they're younger, the idea of being salt and light is so abstract, that's hard to grasp, that's hard to get. But now as they're growing into adulthood, that makes all the sense in the world. I know my purpose. I'm salt, and I'm light, and I'm supposed to be lighting and salting. What if? What if every single child among our group, what if every single child knew who they are? They're a child of God, created in His image. They know who they are. They know where they're going. They're going to heaven. And they're going to walk in the Lord's ways in order to get there. And everything else in between, they got to fill in all the blanks of an entire life. But that life is leading to heaven. And they know how to get there. They get there by the fear of the Lord, walking in that's not much, but that's everything. And if our children, my two, and our children, our 50, whatever it is, if all of them knew those things, know those things, and live those things, imagine the impact it will have on the kingdom of God, His church, All because it started a mom and a dad around a table with some little olive shoots emphasizing spiritual things, emphasizing the way of God. It will sow peace in our homes. It will sow peace in our churches. It will sow peace in our world as much as depends on us. And ultimately, that is what we can reap. But this can only happen in Jesus Christ. It can only happen if we choose to turn to Him. I, uh, I've been studying a lot about John the Baptizer the last couple of weeks, um, and the last verse of the Old Testament. Uh, we've been in the Old Testament the whole lesson. Um, let's turn to the last verse of the Old Testament, Book of Malachi. The last verse of the Old Testament is the first verse quoted in Luke's Gospel about John and his role, Malachi chapter 4. Malachi is actually quoted a number of times at the beginning of the Gospels. Malachi 3 and verse 1 is quoted in Mark 1 and verse 3. But I want to look at the last two verses, probably the last two verses written in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. God is talking about the day of the Lord, and he says in verse 5 to Malachi, who repeats it to the people, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse." You know, the Jews actually would rearrange the words in this verse so that the Old Testament didn't end with the word curse. And yet, that concept of God striking the earth with a curse is provisional. It's only if we don't listen to the spirit of Elijah and what he came to do. This is the end of the Old Testament, but it's also the beginning of the New. And John, the baptizer, was to begin a process brought to fulfillment in Jesus of uniting families in true and everlasting peace and turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And that sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds good for us all to be on the same page. That sounds happy. It sounds blessed even. And it is when our hearts turn back to one another because we have all turned to the Lord that this kind of blessing and peace is available to every one of us. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord who walks in His ways. The family man and every man who chooses to go down this path. If you're not yet a Christian tonight. That's what lies before you. Two paths, two, two choices, two options. You can choose to fear the Lord and come to Him and walk in His ways. And that is the path to blessing and peace and everlasting life. And God wants you to go down that path as a loving Father. He's made the way for you by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to die so that you might have that opportunity. Won't you come? Won't you come and accept His mercy and grace and love? Put Christ on in humble submission and baptism to rise to walk in newness of life. The kind of life that doesn't follow after my own ways and my own desires, but follows after the ways of God and His desires. That's available to you. And if you're already a Christian and you realize that maybe there are some blessings missing in your life because you've not feared the Lord and walked in His ways, it's not too late. Now is the time to turn back to the right path. We're here to help you in whatever way that we can. Why not you come now? While well, together we stand while we sing.